You know, it's so cool as a pastor to just honestly sit back and watch God use the gifts of his people. Because that's really what it boils down to. You know, no one person can accomplish everything. But with all of us doing what God's called us to do, we can accomplish a lot. And so I want to encourage you, look for places to use your giftings. If that happens to be an emergency response, praise God. If that's in the nursery, praise God. If that's as hospitality hostess, praise God. Uh, there, there's all kinds of places for us to use what God's done in our lives, and I want to encourage you to do that. And again, it's through your faithfulness and giving that how these things are made financially possible. And so praise the Lord for what God is doing through you as his church. Amen. If you turn this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 5, as I edit on the fly, need to figure out how to cut about 20 minutes out of this, so we'll see what the Lord does. Amen? <laughs> you know, as we continue now in this study in 1 Timothy, I think it's very important. You'll have noticed here, as these last couple of chapters have gone before us, that the attention is on leadership. And the reason that the attention is on leadership is as a pastor and as elders in the church, those who are in leadership in the church, we're to be setting an example that you all can model. And if that example is not set, then chances are anybody that's coming after that example is going to be probably somewhat less than the example that was set. And so it's very important to understand that you have a responsibility to hold your leadership accountable. One of the things I think has been problematic with the church, especially in our modern day and time, is is that pastors, to some degree, have almost become uh, what we might call celebrities. They've almost reached the the status of someone who's uh, perhaps we would look at as not just an example, but but rather almost a figurehead. And that is not supposed to be the case. The pastor is supposed to be an example to the flock of God. Everything I teach should be a part of what I live. Everything that I say to you should be something that should be first applied in my own home. As I've shared with you so many times, if it's not alive and well in my home, then I cannot expect you to follow that example. It needs to apply to me first. And so here as we begin this next section, we'll be picking up in verse 17 here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And having righteous relationships, you with me and I with you, the leadership of this church with you, uh, this is not a dictatorship. Calvary Chapel of Running Springs and Calvary Chapels in general, uh, our style of leadership is the pastor leads the congregation, but is the elders of the church who along with the pastor make decisions that are based on what we believe God has called this church to be and to do. Uh, it, it is not my way or the highway. It is God's way. We're seeking to accomplish His plans and purposes. And so this morning... Uh, there is definitely a place for us to interact together. Uh, I consider that a privilege as your pastor. But the bottom line is, is you have a voice. And you need to understand that what you are and what you do is just as important as what I am and what I do. We have differing gifts. 
Uh, my gifts are very specific to the calling of pastor, but it is the Scots and Renee Lempuses of this congregation. It is the Sunday school teachers. It is the Christian educators. It, it is those who uh, sit at the soundboard and do PowerPoint, each one of us in our own place, uh, causing the ministry to grow into what God wants it to be. And so this morning, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father God, as we come this morning and we ask you to speak to us, Lord, we are prepared to receive. We invite you to minister to our hearts and to our minds, instruct us by the power of your spirit. Lord, may your word become alive to us. Lord, not merely these words on page, but Lord, the intents of the hearts of man being judged by you. Lord, change us, mold us, and shape us into the image of Jesus. We bless you. We thank you for this time, and we give it to you now to use as you see fit. We ask these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Verse 17, And let the elders who rule well... I want you to circle that. The elders who rule well. And there actually should be a comma there. In the original language, it's very, very clear here that my responsibility as a pastor, the leadership of the church's responsibility in their place, is to rule well. It's not to rule over. It's not to lord over. It is to rule well the flock of God. And what that means is, is presenting God alive to you, in truth to you, doctrinally correct to you. It means to rule well. There's no such thing as a poor pastor. A poor pastor needs to find another profession. A, a pastor who is not ruling well should probably think about whether they've been called or not. There should only be one type of pastor, and that's a pastor who does what God's called them to do well. There's no place for mediocrity. There's no place for poor performance. And there certainly is no place for sin. It is a blight on the church. It is a plague in our world that pastors hold standards that are less than the congregations that they serve. And it needs to change. And so he says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. It's very clear here that this passage is speaking to me. But it's for your benefit. It is for my benefit as well. But it, what it's really saying here is this morning, my job is to do what I've been called to do well. Your job is to make sure that I'm able to do that. And, and we're now going to get a lesson in how we work together to accomplish that goal. Because it's imperative. I can't do what I do without you. And prayerfully, what the pastor does for the church is worthy of that calling and the blessing of being able to be a pastor to the body. And a pastor who finds no joy in being a pastor ought to find something else to do. A, a pastor who will not rightly divide the word and give proper doctrine, notice the context here, who labors in the word and in doctrine. In other words, that my doctrine, my duty, and the things that I do 
would be something that you could go to the scriptures and say, Pastor Jeff lives his life according to the word of God and his doctrine is correct and it is true. If those two things are not true, then it is up to the body to make sure that they have done what they need to do to make sure it is so. And that's why I encourage those who have problems with perhaps a pastor who's out to lunch doctrinally. You need to go talk to that pastor. You need to do what Matthew 18 says. When you have aught with your brother, go to him. And if you can have an impact in his life, Scripture says you've gained a brother. And so Paul, now writing to Timothy, is going to go on. And he says, For the Scripture says, now in verse 18, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. For a worker deserves his wages. Now I want you to notice he's quoting here both from the Old and the New Testament. From the book of Deuteronomy, from the words of Jesus there in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10, also in Luke chapter 10. And so the pastor is supposed to be supported by the church in such a way that he can give his attention to two things, to the word and doctrine. If if I don't spend sufficient time studying, I was joking with people this morning because we were talking about the computer age in which we live. I spend a vast majority of my time in God's word. That's what I do. That's what I'm supposed to do. Because if I don't do that, then my doctrine will not be correct. Because that proper doctrine means to have a knowledge of God's Word. And as we were talking, it's we've come to this place to where the computer tools that we now have available, quite frankly, when I was ordained as a pastor, we didn't have them. They did not exist. It's one of the reasons that I have a very large library, and I also have a very large electronic library now. I have books, and I have computer programs. But all those things are not a substitute for me spending time with Jesus. I'm supposed to spend time with Jesus. And if I can't spend time with Jesus because I'm too concerned about all of the other things going on in my life, uh, I have a mortgage. I have a car payment. I have a son in college. I have all the things that you have. So the attention of my time, if it's going to be proper, needs to be upon the Word of God. And so I need to be able to do that, and that is why pastors receive a salary. Some people say, oh, you only work five hours a week. (laughs) No, you only see me work five hours a week. Some of you about an hour and ten minutes, because you come at the fourth song of worship... You stay through the message, grab a cup of coffee, and you're gone. Now, I'm just, of course, kidding with you. But it is, <laughs> it is my task and my goal to make sure that I have prepared to bring you a message from the Word. I have to have time to do that. And so I need to be able to focus on those things. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I I don't really understand this whole financial thing. We're going to get to that in a moment. It is imperative that you understand the type and the fashion in which it's implemented of church government that we have here and how we handle finances. I want you to fully understand that anyone who's a member of this church can go at any time, any time you like, 
and go see one of our elders. Their names are listed in the bulletin. Uh, Andrew happens to be sitting here in the front row. I'll point him out to you. And you can, you know, I'd really like to see how the church spends its money. That information is available to you anytime you would like to see it. 100% of it. There is nothing hidden, including the salary that I take. I will now share with you that one of the reasons that I believe God has placed me here in this church is to be an example of what Paul called a tent maker because the vast majority of my salary does not come from this church. It comes from my position with Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And I consider that a privilege and a gift to this ministry to be able to do that. But that is not every pastor. And so the example that's given here is that a pastor should be able to be able to be paid by the congregation that they serve. And he uses a very seemingly odd example in an ox. But it's not actually, well, it's not really all that odd for me, but, <laughs> but it is odd in a modern context. As an oxen treads out grain, you have to imagine the situation that existed during that day and time. And of course, the oxen, being a beast of burden, was often yoked out in the field. It would clear the field and be responsible, in essence, for all of the heavy work that happened in the field in planting. And then it would be brought in to be part of the milling or the threshing process. It makes no sense at all if you're deriving your sustenance from that ox to starve it to death while it's working, does it? That's the point. It's important that that person who's working and laboring be able to derive their sustenance from the work that they do. And so that is the example that's given here. But I want you to notice that there is also another example by way of what's not stated. It doesn't say lavish lifestyle. Uh, it certainly doesn't say that the oxen should own its owner's home. Uh, it, it doesn't indicate that the oxen should live better than everyone else. It just simply says that the oxen ought to be able to make a living at what it does. In other words, it could dip its head down and nibble from the very grain that itself was threshing. And so it gives this biblical principle of a workman being worthy of his hire. The thing for which he has done, he ought to be paid. But the reason I say these things to you is, is there is much abuse in our world today. There are a lot of pastors who, I believe, quite frankly, take ungodly salaries, who have homes much larger than they need, and have worldly possessions that those monies could be better spent and I think it is the church's responsibility to stand up and say, no. You, you see, I think it takes both of us doing what we're called to do in order for the church to function well. But it is the responsibility of the church to take care of the pastor. And it's also the responsibility of the church to make sure that pastor is held accountable. And I'm thankful that we have a board of elders here that does that for me. I do not set my own salary. I have no capacity whatsoever to write checks for this church. None. Those things are governed from outside of the pastor. And it is important that we understand that is God's model. I have shared with you before, and as we look at these next couple of studies, 
I have no understanding, none, of who gives what in this church. I don't handle the tithes. I don't count them. I don't know what you give. I don't want to know what you give. That's between you and God. And we're going to see why here in just a second. These things can become horrifically problematic in the body of Christ. As I have heard story after story of people being, they're on the top ten givers list being called up. We're going to get an example of why that's not supposed to be done. Because I'm supposed to lead without partiality. I'm supposed to be an example to everyone regardless of what they do, who they are, whether they've got degrees or whether they give. It doesn't matter. And so the ox should be taken care of, but we should also have full financial accountability in the church. There, there shouldn't be secret corporations. There shouldn't be places where money is squirreled away. There shouldn't be lavish things done. There needs to be a sense that as where we started would be true, which is all things in moderation. All things. I pray I'm being an example to you all in those things. Never accept an accusation, he goes on now to say in verse 19. Against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why does it say this? Let me just give you a little pointed conversation between me as a pastor and you as a congregation. Because everybody has something negative to say about me. I afflict you upon occasion. I say things you don't like because Scripture does the same. I'm going to tell you the truth. You may not like what I have to say. You may not like the way I say it. And as I've shared so many times, I need to be faithful to the word and doctrine. And so if there's something going on, it it may pierce, it, it may hurt, it may cause you all kinds of thought processes that you don't like to have. And so this is protective for the pastor. Because if every time someone brought an accusation against me, you got a new pastor, you'd have a new pastor all the time. About every other week, there'd be a new pastor. There'd be no direction for the church. There would be little that happens that's going to be meaningful for the kingdom's sake. We'd just all be about trying to figure out just weaknesses. Let me share with you. I have them. They're visible. You can see them. Every once in a while, I'll say something that you know, may cut you. It's not my intent to hurt or to harm. It's my intent to faithfully deliver the Word of God. And if I do that, every once in a while, you're going to have a little ouch. Now. But what happens if Pastor Jeff's wrong? Then it's your responsibility to come to me personally and say, you know, you said this and it hurt. And more times than not, We're going to sit down, and I'm going to go, you know, I'm so sorry. I never intended to hurt you that way. I apologize. You will get apologies from this pastor. If there's something that happens, I've been in ministry a long time, and I've learned the value of saying, you know what, maybe I said that too strongly for you. So please come. But here's the protection for the church. You should be able to get rid of a lousy pastor. You should be able to have a voice. 
And if all of a sudden I start teaching health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine, if all of a sudden you see me show up with a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, or, or you see me, you know, gone for months on end because I'm ministering in Tahiti, if all of a sudden I'm telling you, no, God just doesn't really hate divorce anymore, so go ahead, if you're not happy, just divorce your spouse. If all of a sudden you see me making errors in light of what Scripture clearly declares, then you do have a recourse. And that is you make sure that there are a couple of other people who see those same things in the way that you see them. Let me explain this to you very carefully, though. That is not you gaining an army to validate your position. That is there is a glaring deficiency in something that can be backed up biblically. And if you do that, then you bring two or three witnesses to that person, whether it's myself, maybe I've erred in some way, or whether it's somebody in leadership in the church, then you are now at Matthew 18, step 2. And you go to that person so that the facts would be established. The whole goal of confrontation of any problem in anybody's life is restoration. It's so that person would receive it and change, and there you've gained your brother, as that passage says. It's extremely important that the motivation of the confrontation is the important part. Because if you're looking for a perfect pastor, let me give you a clue. You will not find one, ever. Not ever. I serve underneath one of the most blessed men I have ever met in ministry, and that's Pastor Chuck Smith. But he's got a couple of faults. He's got a couple of weaknesses. He's got some things that he just flat doesn't like. I, Steve Mays and I were together one time, and we were talking to Pastor Chuck, and I couldn't believe he said it. But Steve looked at him and said, I'm sure glad you're saved. Otherwise, you would have been the head of the mafia. <laughs> He's direct. He likes things his way. Every once in a while, I have a disagreement with things that he says or does. But that is not a place where I go slaughter his character and find another couple hundred people to do the same so that we can, you know, square him away. We're supposed to treat people with dignity and with respect and with kindness and with gentleness and with you taking responsibility for what you have heard yourself. If you'll do that, then relationships are restored, they're refreshed, they're renewed, they're rebuilt. If you do it any other way, you will destroy that relationship. You'll split the church. You'll have all kinds of things that will happen. And so it says, don't accept. And it actually really says, do not put into the log or the account that accusation. In other words, don't write it down just yet. Don't, don't make it so that that accusation is the law of the land, but rather make sure that that evidence is confirmed out of the mouth of a couple of witnesses. And it's just saying, work together to make sure you've got it right. I, I will tell you that there have been so many times in my time, more than two decades in ministry, 
that I have had the wrong opinion of someone or something because I stopped doing this investigatory part. I heard something, it afflicted me, and I began to dwell on it, and then I talked to somebody by you know, word of mouth, and they, oh, yeah, well, I heard that too. And it was not in the manner that this is being said. It was simply listening to gossip. One of the reasons that Scripture speaks so loudly against gossip is that gossip does nothing but destroy people's lives. destroys their character. It destroys the church. It harms you as a person, and it destroys the other person. It makes your witness so it's no longer credible. And so make sure that when something comes up, we're not skipping or glossing over anything, but when something comes up, that you handle that thing in a godly fashion, knowing that Scripture plainly declares the net goal of any confrontation ever about any disagreement in the body of Christ is to restore that person. Matthew 18, Galatians 6, 1. Because here's why. We all have faults. We all have weaknesses. We, we all have bad days. We all outright sin at times. Amen? I think we can say amen to that. Can we not? Amen? We do. And you're not going to have an explanation for it. You know, I have not yet had somebody come into my office and go, man, I just figured out exactly why I just did that. No, most of the time it's a culmination of the enemy attacking and you believing the wrong things, and there's all kinds of stuff that goes on. Can we just cut each other some slack? But for the grace of God go I. If I've said something, come to me. If you've said something, I'll come to you. But let us be restored. We must deal with the accused. If there's a legitimate thing, we have to deal with it. Make no mistake about what I'm saying. As we look at what's going on in the Catholic Church right now, that, that is a failure of magnitude that cannot even be described in the English language. To constantly give people who repeatedly abuse children, access to children, the church should have a long time ago stood up and started firing people and sending them off to some place to go get rehabilitated, not protecting them, not hanging on to their, you know, in essence, their church's honor. We need to glorify the Lord. So make no mistake, there is nothing said here to where we cover up anything. We don't cover up the pastor's sin. We don't cover up the congregation's sin. And I'm not talking about publicly exposing everybody for everything they do. I'm simply saying when there's a problem, the church must deal with it. Failure to do so is to give the enemy cause to blaspheme. It's to give the enemy ammunition, which he already has more than enough just because of our character and nature. But if there's something legitimately wrong, the church must deal with it. Notice what it says in verse 20. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And that could be all as in the church. It could be all as in front of the elders. The point is, make sure that it's dealt with. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. 
There needs to be a healthy fear brought back into the church of God. That we will not stand for things to which God is adamantly opposed. We're going to stand for life. We're going to stand against the destruction of marriage. We're going to stand against relationships that ought not exist. We're going to stand against the abuse of alcohol and drugs. We're going to stand against these things which Scripture clearly declares. If the church won't stand, I guarantee you the world won't stand. We're the salt and the light in the world. We're supposed to be the example. And so where there is open sin and rebellion, the church must stand so that everybody else has a healthy fear of a holy God. We must. We have to. We we can do no other. As Martin Luther said, "I, I will stand. And having stood, I can do no other thing. You see, we must, you must, and I must stand truthfully on the Word of God. And if someone persists in sin, you know, if I teach you one thing and then you find me doing something else, you have a responsibility as my brother or sister in the Lord to say, Jeff, what are you doing? And the same is true, I for you. You come into my office and you tell me, well, you know, I just think God has freed me to view porn. I'm going to tell you, no, he hasn't. I'm going to tell you, you are in sin and you're destroying your marriage. I'm going to tell you, you need to repent. I'm going to tell you, your wife has the authority of Scripture to divorce you if you persist in it. Now, if you don't like that, You see, I'm going to stand on the Word of God. Why? Because the moment I let you get away with it, or you let me get away with it, everybody is able to get away with it. Because they'll just point, just like we do in a court of law. Well, the president was set, you know. You told them it was okay. Now we stand on that Word and on that doctrine every time. A hundred percent of the time. And this morning we'll end with this. For I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. How do you know why it's so important that a pastor not have information he shouldn't have? Like who gives what? Do you know how damaging it is to a pastor's authority to know who the ten pop givers are in a church? Well, I'm not going to confront their sin. They'll leave and go someplace else. I'm not going to, oh, I don't want to speak to them. That's why I don't know. Because I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the smartest person in the church. I don't care if you're the widow's mite. I don't care if you're the largest giver in this church or you've never given to this church. The standard is God's Word, His holiness, and we are to fear Him. Period. And I don't alter that because of who you are. I will not change simply because, 
well, I'll leave. I would pray I would be able to stop that from happening because of my care for you. But I will not stop telling the truth because of my fear of you. Or what you might do, or what you might say. Because that would make me a very lousy under-shepherd to the Lord Jesus. Because if we're not dealing with truth in the church, if we're not able to call sin, sin, then we have nothing but a philosophical club going on here. And I do not believe that's what church is. Do nothing out of favoritism. Can I tell you that it's easy to play favorites? And to some degree, I think as human beings, we have a propensity to do that. Now, having said that, it's not much fun to not be liked. There, there are times when being a pastor, uh, it hurts. It's painful. Every once in a while, you have to tell somebody the truth. And as much love as you do that with, they don't like the message. They think they're the one that is the one exception to that rule. I challenge you as your pastor that if you ever see me showing favoritism, you call me on it. You point it out. Because if it's happening, I'm wrong. And it shouldn't be. We have to be constantly on guard for these things. Because to not be on guard for them is to give an open door for the enemy. And so this admonition for us this morning, in essence what it shows is the ideal definition of teamwork. I'll do my part and you do yours. Because together we are a more effective tool for the kingdom as a whole, as a church, than I ever will be by myself. Or you ever will be by yourselves. The sum of the parts, in essence, are greater than any one individual. But what we stand on is the word of God. Truthful doctrine. Upholding those standards in such a way that the outside world could look in on the church and say they're without guile, they're without hypocrisy, they don't play favorites if the pastor's wrong he gets called on it, if the congregation is wrong, they get called on it if the individual person has something going on, the standard's the word of God, and if the pastor has a standard other than the word of God then he ought to find something else to do with his time and I pray we would do that because it's good for us. You know, one of the things that you learn very early in dealing with children, such as I do on a daily basis at the camp, is they need standards. They, they need to have an envelope in which they can operate. There needs to be a definition, in essence, of the boundaries. And can I say to you, I don't think we ever fully lose that. I think to one degree, the Word of God hymns us in, and to another degree, it sets us free. But it only sets us free if we abide. It only sets us free if we're walking godly in Christ Jesus. 
It only sets us free if we believe the standard and keep it. Otherwise, it just becomes another area that we're bound up in. We call that legalism. We call people who walk around and they're just worried about what they're doing and how they're looking. I want it to be my heart is right and your heart is right. And as we do that, we're going to treat each other with love and with respect. And we'll accomplish much for the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning in your word. And Lord, though it's been brief, we pray that you administer. Lord, help me to be a better pastor. Father, help me to to have your heart in dealing with all things. I'm so grateful for this church, for this family. And we pray, God, that as issues come up, Lord, that you would help us to lovingly find solutions. God, help us to minister in those areas to where perhaps we can be a benefit to someone else. Lord, help us to never look past uh, the individuals. Lord, the people that we minister to. Lord, help us to always keep that in view, that it is the restoration of relationships that we seek whenever we find an issue in the church. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us and for the things that uh, you are accomplishing through this body. Lord, it is a privilege to join you where you're working, and we pray that you would bless us, Lord. We pray that you would cause us uh, to, to work out these things that would put a smile on your face. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time this morning and pray now that you would bless us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship the Lord and we'll pray for our offering this morning. Pour out your spirit.